0: Granger, for the ones who get it done.
1: The first thing to know about running for president in the 19th century is that you didn't run for president. You didn't go out and campaign. You didn't try to reach voters. You certainly couldn't be charismatic, and you didn't take the stump. For lower offices, yes, but for the presidency of the United States, it was seen as demeaning. But Stephen Douglas in 1860 had an issue. He didn't have any money. And he couldn't compete with his opponents, Brackenridge, Lincoln, and Bell. And he knew that he had an asset. Think about we have the Patreon site, so the Patreon is simply the letters of my history can beat up your politics. It's Patreon.com/slash/mhcbuyp. Check it out, and uh, if you can support the program, great. If not, you'll know, tell someone about the program. Give us a review. Uh, tweet at me at uh, at, my hist, at myhist at m y h i s t. We have the Facebook group. Fans of my history can beat up your politics. And he knew that he had an asset. He was good on stage. He could whoop up the crowds and then the money would follow. Douglas starts hearing things. New England, despite generally being Republican, is a little weak this year. If he could reach Democrats there, he could awaken them and start a real campaign. On July 14th, 1860, he heads out, but... You just can't call it your presidential tour in these times. The papers start nosing around. So his campaign manager and financier, August Belmont, tells everyone the candidate is simply calling on his mother. His mother lived in upstate New York in Clifton Springs. And then he just wanted to go see his brother-in-law's graduation, which was in Massachusetts at Harvard. Oh, and since he was in Massachusetts, he'd just stopped for a visit to see his father's grave in Vermont. And along the way, if an audience talked him into speaking, or as Belmont said, betrayed him into a speech, how could he refuse? Needless to say, it was not convincing, and 19th century ink demonstrated that the whole idea of not stomping was not simply candidates being demure, but enforced by culture and enforced by pushback. As one newspaper says, nobody was fooled by his contrivance. No other man in the union would have the audacity to stump the country as a candidate for president, a Republican newspaper says. Seizing on Bellman's story that it was just Douglas going out to visit his mother all over New England, Creative Republicans posted handbills that claimed to be looking for a boy lost. The missing child, a double hit on Douglass' shortness, has not yet reached his mother, who is very anxious about him. The boy, it says, in a final dig, is about five feet nothing. Noah Webster used a very similar device in 1795 to mock an up-and-comer in politics. In his America Minerva newspaper, he wrote the newspaper before he came up with his famous dictionary. He warned of a certain little senator running about the streets, whispering things in people's ears, and making large entertainments. Why, it's outrageous, meeting those voters, talking to them, buying them food and drink. That's what Aaron Burr, senator from New York, seemed to be doing, traveling around New York on behalf of Aaron Burr. Burr didn't like the pretense. He knew that his other opponents, they were running for governor too, but they weren't saying it. He didn't didn't like the delegating of others, the political craft, when he knew he was good at it himself. And he wanted to get the information that one gets on the campaign trail talking to voters. For Noah Webster, this couldn't be allowed. This running about the streets, squeezing hands. It could make a somebody out of Mr. Nobody. Burr wasn't quite Mr. Nobody. He's the son of a respected clergyman. He's grandson to Jonathan Edwards, the famous preacher. He comes from a real family background that's known. He was a smart lawyer who leaped into politics when there was a faction going on in New York between George Clinton and his group and Robert Livingston and his group and Sort of fit very well without taking sides in that battle, and then each one maybe wanted to work with him, and lo and behold, he gets places. He ends up working on a campaign for Abraham Yates, political force out of Albany in the state, running against George Clinton. Doesn't win that race, ended up surprisingly working alongside Alexander Hamilton, one of the few times that'll happen. Loses that race, but George Clinton sees in Aaron Burr something. Offers him the spot of state attorney general. He pursues it vigorously, and he's picked for Senate. Still, and this will continue through Burr's career, people can't quite find a solid principle that he's for. But he does pick up certain issues. He kind of knows when there's a good fight. He's known for campaigning against an unfair treaty with Great Britain called the Jay Treaty, after John Jay, who negotiated it, and just as much for defending the honor of immigrant and Republican, okay, this would have been Jeffersonian Republican, small-r Republican, Senator Albert Gallatin of Pennsylvania, who was elected to the Senate but then thrown out by the U.S. Senate because he was not born in the United States and not here long enough in their reckoning. He loses that battle, but in doing so gains the respect of Republicans. He loses that governor's race in New York to the author of that treaty, John Jay. He makes a commotion. He develops a reputation for his political prowess, but also for his intriguing. The Connecticut wits that write in various Federalist newspapers make up a poem about him. Democratiad. What mad ambition is in his bosom born. Nobody kind of knows what he's planning. So when during that governor's campaign... He takes off time to go to Virginia, which can't possibly help him win in a New York governor's race. Many eyebrows are raised. He spent one day at Monticello with Jefferson. Neither man wrote or spoke of what was said. There's an odd reference that might be telling from Jefferson to a neighbor that makes it clear he was only there for the day, like he didn't stay over. But it's a pretty quick reference in a letter about something else. Federalists suspect that they were meeting to undermine the government, which, to Federalists, those supporters of the Washington administration, and at this time, 1795, meant trying to change the government at all, not having one of them lead it. Still, to the extent... 1795 would have been an intriguing year. People were pretty certain within the capital of Philadelphia that Washington was not going to run for another term and that there would be a novel thing in America, an actual contested presidential race. There hadn't really been, certainly not in 1788, when everyone knew Washington was going to win and most people knew that John Adams would be the vice president. In 1792, there's a little bit of a contest. Republicans actually try To replace John Adams with a figure from the Revolutionary War in New York State, George Clinton, kind of New York State local hero, you know, governor of the state, popular there, though also not without political enemies, George Clinton. And they were not able to upset John Adams. Burr volunteers. Then he defers to George Clinton. That Washington was not going to run again was something that was not a surprise to people like John Adams or Abigail Adams, who were writing letters about it, waiting for when the announcement was going to be made. Washington constantly complained about the office. But in the rest of the country, it wasn't as well known. So the first campaign of 1796 you know, starts with a lot of quiet and secret intriguing, and then is very fast. It's often said that uh, Burr and Jefferson run for vice president and president in 1796 are the ticket of the, quote, Republican Party. But this is very early in the Republican Party system, and so I think there's more complexity to that. Some truth to it, but more complexity. Jefferson was understood to be the presidential candidate, of this is certainly sure, of anyone who was anti-J Treaty, anti-Washington, anti-Hamilton you know, anti kind of big government or national bank, these type of issues. James Madison leads the anti administration forces in Congress, the anti J Treaty forces in Congress, and he does conduct a meeting in Philadelphia, but It's not known what's said in that meeting. Burr's talked about in that meeting. Burr may have even received the highest number of votes in the meeting, but there are several other candidates talked about. Robert Livingston, also of New York, is one of them who might run with Jefferson in this. A senator from um, New Hampshire is also talked about. Pierce Butler of South Carolina is talked about, too, but he's the one that we know The meeting didn't go his way because he storms out. They didn't want to choose Pierce Butler because the group was looking for to run with the Virginian and the the author of the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson at this time would have been legendary. They want to run a Northerner. Federalist gossip is the only news of this meeting that survives. Southerners didn't like the idea of Jefferson Burr in 1796, not all of them. You can't really trust him. Is he really a Republican? You know, if we put Livingston in there, we know he's going to be with us. Burr's got a nice group behind him. And and Burr did have this kind of organization in the New York, they called it the little band that would support him in elections. And the clubs that he forms will be the essence of Tammany Hall, the political machine that's going to operate into the 20th century. Some of these Republicans at the meeting worry, if we run Jefferson and Burr, would Burr just run for president himself? He might start a northern party of Republicans and keep the South down. But politics made Burr attractive, and letters seem to indicate. Letters between the House clerk, John Beckley, and James Madison writing about this initially seem to indicate that uh, it looks like Burr and Jefferson make the logical choice. Burr is a bit of a national figure for his stands. Because he defended Albert Gallatin of Pennsylvania, he's got friends there. And because he pushed for statehood in Tennessee. He's got friends there. He's got friends in Kentucky. But Burr would like to make more friends somewhere else. So once again, he puts himself into the race. He campaigns in Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Vermont. Doesn't call it a campaign. Just says he's making some talks. This starts to get Republicans a little suspicious. John Beckley now writes to Madison that, It appears that he's more dedicated to himself than anyone else. Like most things with Aaron Burr, it's hard to tell. The Federalist gossip, there's actually Hamilton has some spies that he sends up to hear some of these speeches that the little senator's making, and they say, actually, he's going out of his way to stump for Jefferson, and not he. But Virginians are suspicious, and the Richmond Argus says, essentially, to vote for Virginia. Virginia's interests have to be represented in the election of 1796, it's a bigger state, it's a richer state, it's a better state. Burr will end up getting only one vote in Virginia. Was he betrayed by a party that had made him the vice presidential candidate? Jeffrey Palsey in his The First Presidential Contest, 1796, and the founding of American Democracy suggests that there may have been no real presidential and vice presidential nominations or a deal at all in 1796. The caucus, if it recommended Burr, may have been no more effective than a backroom deal that many electors were free to disregard. Discipline was a very different thing then. This was a loose group of people. And for the Virginians, the interest of Virginia, that meant getting Jefferson elected president was greater than anything else. As to Burr's 1795 visit to see Jefferson, Halsley writes, Word was put out that no other politicians had been present during the visit. Burr had gotten the same Jefferson family dinner that hundreds of other travelers enjoyed. While the master of Monticello's capacity for secret transactions should never be underestimated, subsequent developments suggest that no clear-cut deal was reached. It's kind of reflected in this 1796 voting. Adams wins. Jefferson comes in second. It's 71 electoral votes to 68. Pickney, the choice of Hamilton, Hamilton had a secret plan to get Pickney and not Adams in there. It doesn't work. He gets 58. Burr is fourth, fourth, with 30 votes to Jefferson's 68. So there's 38 Republican voters, right, if we were thinking parties, that don't vote for him. Electors, I should say. Burr got nothing for his travels through New England. He doesn't get a single vote there. His votes come from Pennsylvania, a few from Kentucky. He gets, um, Adams gets the votes from New York, so he doesn't get anything from his home state. He gets one vote from Virginia, as we've mentioned. The Virginians decide, you know, if we vote for Burr, there's a possibility who knows, you know, there's a possibility that he gets more votes. There's some deal with Federalists and he becomes president and not Jefferson. The best thing to do for Jefferson is to throw away your second votes. I should remind listeners that this is the time during elections before the Twelfth Amendment. So you don't pick president and vice president. The electors simply pick two people. But already people were thinking about who they wanted to be president and vice president. That really happens with election one. It's just you really can't control the dynamics, so you do the best you can. And the way that they do it in Virginia is to vote first for Jefferson, then throw away the second vote by voting for Samuel Adams. Now this has a double whammy because it both protects Jefferson, uh, make sure be from because Samuel Adams isn't going to get a near enough votes to even be a contender, and it's also a little ding to John Adams. By voting for his cousin. Did Burr feel deceived? He doesn't say too much about 1796 that's recorded. So, for instance, he doesn't also say that some deal was reached or he was the official vice presidential candidate or things like that. Um, There's no letter like that. Four years later, he does mention that he had no confidence in Virginians, they cannot be trusted. He will get on a more organized ticket in 1800 and will get all the votes of Republican electors, which will, which is part of another story that you know well. And here I'm trying to shed light on the more obscure one, so there's no reason to get into the election of 1800, but you do know that that'll lead to a stalemate between Burr and Jefferson because there was such excellent party discipline. Some of that comes from what happened here. Burr was criticized for taking the stump, but he also benefited from it. By the time you get to 1800, George Clinton's health is not that great. And as one of Republican electors said, Burr was the only man. His own efforts had put himself out there.
0: Let's go down to grassroots America where the people are hurting. And everybody's saying, why are we in this mess? First thing I'd like you to do, all of you, is look in the mirror. We're the owners of this country.
1: When billionaire businessman Ross Perot, Texan, offering a kind of uh, refreshing change for many Americans.
0: We don't act like the owners. We act like white rabbits that get programmed by messages coming out of Washington. We own this place.
1: You have to go back to like May and June of 1992. First of all, the economy's in recession. President Bush is not that popular. At the same time, they did not run well-known names, Mara Cuomo, Sam Nunn. They have... Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton, who's kind of a new person who's winning most of the primaries. So a lot of people are turning to this guy, Perot, who's getting attention, and he's interviewed on the news quite often. Can you give me a scenario in which you'd say, okay, I'm in?
0: Well, number one, I don't want to. I
1: know. Is number there a scenario? Number two,
0: you know, if you're that serious, you, the people, are that serious, you register me in 50 states, and if you're not willing to organize and do that, then, this wait is all just talk. Stay with me, Larry. Are you I'm saying to the ordinary folks. If you're dead serious, start committees. Then Florida, I want to see Georgia. some sweat. I want to see some sweat. Why do I want to see some sweat? I said it earlier. I want you in the
1: ring. He decides he will run. He starts polling just as high in competition with the parties and one of the highest polling third-party presidential, can, third presidential candidates since polling's been invented. But then, just as quick, in July 1992, Perot gets out of the race. He actually decides to drop out of the race on the day before Bill Clinton's going to be nominated in New York by the Democrats. Now, this is probably on purpose. He was mostly running against Bush, had a right, did not like George Bush. Later, he explains the reason why. What annoyed him most was a secret plot to sabotage his daughter's wedding. I can't prove any of it today, he says on CBS News, but it was a risk I did not have to take and a risk I would not take where my daughter is concerned. Perot says that President Bush's campaign was scheming to smear his daughter with a computer-altered photograph to disrupt her wedding. In addition to the accusations about his daughter, Perot said that he had a videotape of a senior member of the Bush campaign talking to a contract employee of the CIA in Dallas and that the CIA employee was hired to tap into his computerized stock trading program to prevent him from having the money to revive his campaign. Marlon Fitzwater, who was Bush's press secretary, says it's all nonsense, nothing to it. I don't know where he's getting it from. These are fantastic stories. Bush family answers through Prescott Bush Jr., Prescott Bush Jr., who says that Mr. Perot is a psychopath. After he withdraws from the race, Perot says that he's able. He's scheduled to meet with President Bush, but that meeting's canceled because Perot's saying too much about these dirty tricks. Eventually he meets with James Baker, Bush chief of staff, campaign manager. Perot still tells papers uh, months later that neither George Bush nor Jim Baker ever comes back and says, you're crazy we didn't do this, and I find that fascinating, Perot says. Years later, one of Perot's sources—he claims he has other sources—but one of Perot's sources was a man named Scott Barnes, who's a private investigator that sometimes would be used by Republicans. But also, Perot knew, said it was a lie that he told Perot. Barnes said he and a former producer from the British Broadcasting Corporation, David Taylor, convinced Perot that his phones were being tapped and that Republicans had photo of one of his photos of one of his daughters in a compromising position and intended. To disrupt her wedding. Barnes, who did occasional work for Perot, said he and Taylor thought a dirty tricks campaign linked to the GOP would cause George Bush to lose his presidency. But the plan backfired because Perot was drawn in, not realizing the whole thing was a conspiracy and a hoax. Although Perot and Barnes never met, they had spoken on the phone since the mid 1980s about their mutual obsession with American POWs and MIAs from Vietnam. Perot had become convinced that Washington had abandoned American POWs in the service of some CIA conspiracy. A former associate interviewed by Newsweek hypothesized that Barnes may have invented the story about a doctored photo in order to be a player in the election. If so, incredibly it worked. Barnes claimed that he got calls from Jim Oberwetter, Texas chairman of Bush Quail that Oberwetter began asking leading questions about Perot, including about the daughter. For his part, the chairman of the Texas Bush Quail campaign says that it was Barnes that contacted him, kept claiming that he had damaging information about Perot. So he's kind of like working on both sides. In one case, Oberwetter says that he hung up on per- on Barnes. You know, Barnes's history goes way back in, in 1983, Soldier of Fortune, called Barnes its favorite flake. When Hiram Johnson was suggested for the vice presidency in 1920 to run with Warren Harding, this is before the convention picked Coolidge. he didn't want any part of it. He doesn't even want to take the phone call, but he does. And a reporter's in the room. Hello? Hello? Johnson speaking. No. 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 Not in a million years. No, I tell you. Oh, yes. No siree. For the last time. No. No. Scotch in hand, the senator from California, throws down the telephone. Jimmy Montage, a friend in the room, says, Okay, Hiram, Um, I heard... Everything you said, all of those no's, but what about the yes in the middle? That was when the gentleman asked me if I was sure of what I was saying. Johnson replied. It was true that most 19th century candidates were supposed to show disinterest in the presidency when they were getting nominated, but with Horatio Seymour, it was taken to a new limit. He really did not want the presidency, nor even his party's nomination for it. But? In the 1868 Democratic Convention, held fittingly at Tammany Hall, Tammany Hall in New York City, there was an issue. George Pendleton, who had turned off Union soldiers in 1864 as the Peace Democrat, he was leading, he was charismatic, a lot of Democrats liked him, but enough didn't to withhold a majority from him. Andrew Johnson, the current president, was a possibility. But not all Democrats trust him. He had run with Lincoln on the Union ticket and attacked Democrats in Tennessee. Samuel Chase, Supreme Court Justice, Chief. He was a possibility too, but he was a former Republican again and attacked Democrats. Uh, Senator Thomas, a Hendricks of Indiana was a possibility, but no one could get the 212 needed for 15 ballots. Then Winfield Scott's even, uh, Hancock, Union General is thrown in. He gets past Pendleton and takes Pendleton out But he doesn't get the 212 to win. So on the fourth ballot, something, you know, notable happens, but not significant yet. The chair of the convention, Horatio Seymour himself, who's sitting there in the middle of the convention at the desk, gets nine votes. Well, the chairman makes a note into the record. The last vote contained votes for me. I must not be nominated by this convention. I declined on the outset. I cannot allow my name to be mentioned. Against my protest. So the party keeps voting. They get to 25 ballots. And then the state of Ohio gives all its votes. These are the Pendleton votes, where the Pendleton campaign has collapsed. All its votes to Horatio Seymour. It figures New York, its home state, will also. That'll start momentum, and that will at least wrap up the convention with a candidate everyone likes. Clement Valendingham says, In times of great public exigency and calamity all must sacrifice. There are cheers. As he says, Ohio cannot, will not accept the chairman's declaration. In other words, you're running for president whether you want it or not. Seymour gets up again. I have no terms, he says, with which to express my gratitude for all of the good words said about me, he says. I'd give my life for my country. And I identify that life with the Democratic Party. Then someone screams at him, then take the nomination. I do not stand here as a man proud of his opinions or obstinate in his purposes, but it is a question of my duty and honor, and I must stand in my opinions against the world. There are cheers for him. Then he says, when I said I could not be a candidate, I meant it. He goes on, thank God there is a state of Ohio and this and that, but essentially he refuses again. The convention goes on for a few ballots, but does not accept his declination. And despite his own wishes, Horatio Seymour is the Democratic candidate. It was unanimous. A robust election occurred, focused mostly on the issue of Reconstruction, how the southern states would be treated. Republicans hinted that Horatio Seymour might be insane. His father had committed suicide. Meanwhile, the Seymour ticket appeals to racial solidarity, to white men. The Seymour-Blair ticket wins New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Kentucky, Oregon, Maryland. But not enough to beat Ulysses S. Grant and his strength in all the other states. Grant wins 214 to 80 electoral votes. But considering Grant was a war hero, we're coming right off the Civil War. And most of the votes are in Union states or Union-controlled states. This is a concerning election for Republicans. Seymour gets 48% of the Connecticut votes. Same with Pennsylvania and Indiana. He's real close there. 49% of California's votes. And the ticket wins Georgia. 1868 becomes both the... Reconstruction-era election and the beginning of the end for Reconstruction, partially because of this result. A lot of Republicans in the North are seeing the writing on the wall. They're not going to be able to maintain this Reconstruction policy and keep winning elections. Nonetheless, a win is a win is a win. And Grant's campaign put out these campaign cards that look like it was a business card they were handing out. Grant and Colfax, Tanners, Washington, D.C. And it read, respectfully inform the people of the United States they will be engaged in tanning old Democratic hides until the third day of November. But it goes on. The senior member of this firm, having experience in this business, tanning Democratic hides, thinks that with the help of his partner, Colfax, all work will be done in a satisfactory manner. References? See Robert E. Lee. Horatio Seymour loses this election that he didn't want to run in, and it's good for humanity because right after, the 15th Amendment guarantees the right to vote regardless of race. Seymour keeps saying no to offices. He wasn't kidding. He turns down a run for Senate and governor, and he stays an elder statesman. He'll live for 20 more years. You can't say that about Grant's next opponent, Horace Greeley. For all the talk in recent years about age in the presidency, Greeley is the only major presidential candidate not to make it to the Electoral College to even receive his votes. It starts out well. The Grant administration, in four years of service, manages to anger a significant group of Republicans called Reform Republicans, Liberal Republicans, their own party. And they're mad about civil Service, about patronage, the way the Grant administration is running things, corruption, and policy towards the South. And they run their own convention in 1872. They do not nominate Grant. They meet in Cincinnati to decide who they will nominate. Everyone thinks it's going to be Charles Francis Adams to run as liberal Republican party candidate. He's the son of John Quincy Adams son of a president. This is the family dynasty, the last chance we are going to see at this family to get a president. He was minister to England and minister to Great Britain during the Lincoln administration. Charles Francis Adams had a significant role in keeping the United States and England out of war and keeping England out of the Civil War and then negotiated the Alabama claims with Great Britain. If you're keeping in track of the Adamses, His grandson, he is the grandson of John Adams, the president, obviously son of the other president, and his son, Henry, is the historian. So Adams is a candidate. So is Governor Gatz Brown of Missouri, who has been disappointed with the Republican Party. Lincoln no longer alive at this point, of course, has a couple of his friends running. Illinois Judge David Davis and Lynn Trumbull. Both were Lincoln friends. But a few people start talking about another candidate. Perhaps we could run the editor, Horace Greeley, of the New York Tribune. See, Greeley would be considered a megastar in 1872. Everyone's going to know his name. His pen is read by so many. Whitelaw Reed, another editor at the Tribune, will run his convention effort. And it gets a little wild for this new party in Cincinnati. The first thing that happens is Lynn Trumbull drops out. And then Governor Gratz makes a deal with Whitelaw Reed. I'll drop out and favor your man Greeley if you run me as vice president. And soon Greeley overtakes Charles Francis Adams. Greeley's in the lead and eventually wins. Everyone's surprised by this. No one expected Horace Greeley to get a presidential nomination. Um, some liberal Republicans are mad. They are free traders, low-tariff people, and Greeley's a high-tariff protectionist. Greeley's also a little weird. He's a vegetarian. He has thousands of printed statements that can be used against him. When a strange results happens at a party convention like this, you could some might say, like, oh, They were all drunk, but actually the opposite criticism is leveled at the liberal Republican party in Cincinnati. This is an egghead choice, as we might say now. It's more, they say then, the problem with this convention, there were more brains than whiskey. But there is another side to this. I'm always kind of going against the, the textbook a bit, or trying to enliven the textbook history a bit and reminding people that hindsight is 2020. So, if you go back at this time, you have to remember Greeley's not a name that you're going to have to tell people who he is. He's the most read editor in the land. His name is just up there, and you are running against a superstar of the time, Ulysses S. Grant, the hero general. So, who do you run against him? Your megastar. So, that's one thing. I mean, Rutherford B. Hayes is looking at this election. He's not president-elect. That's going to happen later. He's governor of Ohio, and he's looking at it and saying, Greeley could win this. And what happens next adds even more fuel to that fire. It's something that will never happen again. The Democrats meet in Baltimore. They bang a gavel and then merely decide, okay, we will not field candidates. We're not going to go into a three-way scrum and get beaten. We could do that and just raise the party banner, but we don't have anybody and we're not going to. So the Democrats simply nominate Horace Greeley and Gats Brown in one of the fastest, the fastest Democratic Party convention ever held. They just accept the liberal Republican ticket. A few Democrats are mad about this. Greeley had fought Democrats all his life. Here's another thing that's amazing about Horace Greeley as a candidate for president in 1872. He does something new. He calls for reunification of the country for the North and South to get together. Now, this is an issue that you really have to contextualize in this time. He wants complete amnesty for anyone who had a rifle in that war, that they can vote, that Confederate soldiers or officers can run for federal office. But this is mixed with something else, which makes Greeley highly interesting. Greeley is also an advocate on record for equal rights for everyone, regardless of race. And he does something else. He will make no apologies about it. He will hit the the stump. He is a speaker. He is an editor. His opinions are known. He's always voiced his opinions. He's not going to be silent now. That would be foolish. The campaign will go forth, and there will be campaign songs like The Man in the White Hat to save us, and The Friend of Freedom, Horace Greeley. He's mostly going to get support in the South, though some Democrats are upset. It's like worshipping Mohammed instead of God, one Democratic writer says. A choice of hemlock and strychnine, says another. A man with too many ideas against a man with none. Things do start to go bad, though for Greeley and his running mate especially. Gats Brown turns out to be an embarrassment. He shows up at the New York Liberal Republican Club to make his big speech as vice presidential candidate. Most haven't seen this man because he's been a western governor. He shows up drunk and continues with his speech. Then at Yale University, he throws up. Must have been something I ate, etc. Not only that, one of Greeley's big issues is that he'll give the votes to Confederates and will offer amnesty to them in order to try to unify the country after war. Congress does this with a few exceptions in the summer to deprive Greeley of this issue. Greeley does pick up an issue when the Credit Mobley scandal is discovered with congressmen having been bought on the floor of the House, and most of them are allied with Grant. This doesn't look good. But then it's found that in Greeley's history, he has purchased railroad stock and then promoted the railroad in his newspaper that he purchased stock of. Plus, he's attacked for accepting Democratic support. A Harper's cartoon showed him shaking hands with John Wilkes Booth over Lincoln's grave, ignoring that Greeley had always supported equal rights for all races. And while he wasn't always a Lincoln supporter, or supporter of how he prosecuted the war like many people in the North. He had supported him against McClellan in 1864. Something else happens. Greeley's wife dies during the campaign. She had been ill, and not only is Greeley forced to stop campaigning and loses that one magic weapon he has that he's a candidate who can hit the stump and speak to audiences, perhaps personally affect the result, he's broken. He's also exhausted, and Grant's campaign is too well organized. He loses that election badly. We have been beaten badly, he says. Greeley was exhausted, stressed. Even his own newspaper is being taken away from him as Whitelaw Law Reed becomes the key editor. He dies before the Electoral College is able to meet in December. His death is greatly mourned in America. Grant, of course, is at his funeral. Everyone mourns him. And his electoral votes are given to other candidates, some to Gats Brown. Uh, Those that came from the South are given to Thomas Hendricks of Indiana. But at least Greeley knew that he was running a campaign for president with Rufus King, federalist, in quotes, candidate, in quotes, from New York, and possibly the last federalist candidate in 1816. We don't know. There may or may not have been a campaign. There also may or may not have been a summer. 1816 is a really weird year around the world. Europe had only cold weather even in the summer. Thomas Jefferson and others in America note about the horrible summer here. There's really no hot weather in July and August. It's worse in Europe. It's ruining farm crops and not as bad with that in America, but ruins them there. It might be, scientists now think, a volcano eruption that happens in Indonesia that created the conditions around world, but it wasn't well known then for the federalist party they had their own disaster their political volcano the hartford convention during the war of 1812 where people met in connecticut associated with the federalists and seemed to be against the american cause never looked good seemed to threaten disunion working with britain even though they weren't but it hurt the party's chances and you never saw federalists after that you know be a significant force by the tail end of Jefferson's presidency, even Adams and his son John Quincy were supporting Republicans in Massachusetts. So you can think of Rufus King, who is in the history books as James Monroe's opponent in 1816, as the last Federalist. I mean, he says, you know, I am a Federalist in the sense of Hamilton, and in the sense James Madison once was, and I always will be. Yeah, King never gives up the fight of this old aging party. When 1816 comes around, Madison is president, and the Congressional Caucus picks James Monroe. There are some groans. Another Virginian? Imagine, four presidents in a row from California, right? separated perhaps by one from New York. How would Americans like that? This is a very long time. Um, 28 years of having presidents at all, and most of them are from Virginia. Virginia, Massachusetts, Virginia, Virginia, Virginia. 28 years. Monroe was Secretary of State and Secretary of War in Madison's administration, gets some credit for the defense of of Baltimore during the War of 1812 um, for an organized retreat that may have... Help save the president's life in the War of 1812. So he was going to win. For the Federalists, Connecticut newspapers would say that we should be willing to concede national offices and just focus on local ones. And this is where Rufus King comes in. He's very popular. He's a senator from New York. He does run for governor of New York. But this King does reluctantly. He'd rather that the Federalists become more of a political constituency Than a party. In other words, they will pick the least wicked section of the Jeffersonian Republicans or the Madisonian Republicans and side with that less wicked faction to determine who will win elections. They can be more influential. When they run him, he says to some, I I hope we will not make a fruitless struggle. But he's flooded with letters. If you decline, it will be the end of the federal party, one writes him. He does run for governor. And he loses in a three-way race. So we have evidence of letters around that race for governor in 1816. What we don't have is any idea that there's a presidential campaign. It's after the gubernatorial election that electors in state capitals meet and support mostly Monroe and Tompkins. And electors of Massachusetts... Connecticut and Delaware vote for Rufus King. That's why it shows up in the history books as if it was Rufus King against James Monroe. But per Edward Skeen's 1816 America Rising, no caucus was held by the Federalists, no Federalist nominee ever made, and nothing in King's correspondence says he's a presidential candidate. John Randolph of Virginia found 1816 dull, duller than a state legislature election, 10 times duller. There was no bother in any way to excite the community over the presidential race. There was no reason to. But any election atlases have to have their formatting so you see King versus Monroe. It's more likely King didn't run it at all. though he didn't seem to protest the votes either. The most exciting thing that happens in the non-election of 1816 is the counting of Indiana's votes. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call Claygranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Indiana cast electoral votes, three for Monroe. But a senator objects when the Congress gets together to count the, the votes. And Henry Clay, who's the Speaker of the House, is the head of the joint session of Congress. That means the Senate and the House getting together to count the votes. Only senators can object, a senator does. Indiana was not yet a state when the Electoral College happened. It was a territory still. Because Congress is in joint session, though, Henry Clay is presiding, he rules that they cannot decide the matter, you know, in this, in this body. They can only perform their constitutional function. So it's sent back to the House. The House decides to approve the votes of Indiana. And then it's sent for the Senate, which counts the vote. There is no reason at all that even that incident in 1816 is important, except to emphasize and to remember, in case there is any election disputes in the future, that this is one step not talked about a lot. It it is the Congress that ends up counting electoral votes, not popular votes, Um, electoral votes. And so both in 1860s, actually a problem in 1820 with Missouri's votes, a similar thing where um, there was still territory when they cast the votes, but in this case, they're just quickly accepted. The only thing that the Congress decides to do in that case is to produce two vote counts, one with Missouri and one without, and then demonstrating that Monroe would be president in either case, they accept those votes. Monroe's next election would be a bigger landslide. And therefore, not that important to talk about. There isn't even an attempt to run an opponent, if there even was in 1816. But nonetheless, it does provide an interesting footnote of a story. Through a lot of history, maybe even your high school books. I, I'd have to re-listen to all my cast, maybe in some of the early ones. I may have even told the story of this way. We were told that Monroe in 1820 gets all the electoral votes, all of them, except for one. That's a fact. That's true. And you may have been told that one elector voted against Monroe only to preserve the tradition that Washington's legacy to be the only president to receive all of the electoral votes in an election. The only president elected unanimously. And it's a nice story. Washington certainly deserves it, I guess, but it has no basis in reality. It's not the elector's story, which was documented at the time. It's later history books riffing off each other and telling the same incorrect story starting in the 1880s after one person speculates that that's the reason the elector voted against Monroe. Others follow. One book even consulted the memory of a judge and the judge said, He could think of no other explanation that he ever heard that people voted that way in 1820. The problem was the judge was 15 years old at the time of the election. So how would he know? Really, it's just bad history work. A journal of the Mississippi Valley History Review delved into this. And William Plummer is that elector. He's an elector from New Hampshire. He's a maverick, but he's not a fluke. He's an important person. He's the former governor of New Hampshire. He's 61 in 1820. He's a leader of Republicans in the state. He was not asked to be an elector and not consulted on how he was vo- he would vote. He was automatically added to the group of electors in, that would meet in Concord, the state capital, in December 1820 because of his stature as a former governor. Having not been consulted... The Monroe supporters in New Hampshire assume everyone, of course, meeting in Concord's going to vote for the Republican ticket, the only one, the Concord Patriot, had said, of course all will vote for Monroe and Tompkins. And it goes further. New Hampshire has not in its bosom a son so degenerate as to forget our national benefactors. The writer had no idea of what William Plumbing's feelings were. He thought Monroe did a horrible job, And he told his fellow electors at the Electoral College meeting about the extravagances of spending. And he felt that was what led to the recent panic, the Panic of 1819. And Tompkins, the VP candidate, was even worse, in his opinion. The VP was a drunk. Instead, Plummer votes for John Quincy Adams. He is attacked by the friendly New York newspaper of Vice President Tompkins that he was acting for reasons lacking sense. This was all in Plummer's biography, which was available to those late 19th century historians, but some of them didn't consult it, and then they were riffing off each other. You see a few books in the 20th century that start to correct this, but legend dies hard, and you'll still see that uh, people will say it was because preserving Washington's tradition and not because of politics. So even in the era of good feelings, where there supposedly was no disagreement, right? There certainly was, but there was less party disagreement. Monroe was not reelected in a perfect electoral college, and this preserves Washington's legacy even more. Because he truly wasn't reelected in a perfect electoral college, there was actually dissent. It was the greatest campaign that never happened.
2: The problems which this country now faces are staggering, both at home and abroad. We need the service in the great sense of every educated man or woman to find 10 million jobs in the next two and a half years, to govern our relations, a country which lived in isolation for 150 years and is now suddenly the leader of the free world, to govern our relations with over 100 countries, to govern those relations with success so that the balance of power remains strong on the side of freedom, to make it possible for Americans of all different races and creeds to live together in harmony, to make it possible for a world to exist in diversity and freedom. All this requires the best of all of us.
1: It would feature two opponents of opposite political philosophies, not just parties.
0: Let our republicanism so focused And so dedicated, not be made fuzzy and futile by unthinking and stupid labels.
1: With differences and debates between them on television for the whole country to see. Liberal versus conservative. Every argument. But an assassin's bullet would change it. It's easy to forget that Kennedy's 1963 trip to Dallas, where he was assassinated, was a political trip mending fences between the liberal and conservative wings of the Texas Democratic Party, including his own vice president and a liberal senator, Ralph Yarbrough, didn't see eye to eye. Kennedy makes them ride in the car together. Texas was touchy, touch and go for the Kennedy campaign planned for 1964. Kennedy wanted to win the state. It was also trickier 64 was going to get because George Wallace was announcing that he would challenge Kennedy in primaries in 64, not just in the South, but also in the North. And this was before any civil rights bill had been passed. It was just when Kennedy had spoken out for civil rights on TV. On November 13th, 1963, Kennedy has a planning meeting. This could be fun, he says, if it's Barry. He liked Barry Goldwater. But he said... Goldwater had no brains and could be beaten, so he recommended to DNC Chair John Bailey that don't waste it if we see a chance to praise him. The president was picking his opponent he wanted Goldwater to run against, a novel strategy that on reflection might have long legs. Give me Barry, JFK said. I won't even have to leave the Oval Office. The two had already had conversations, Senator Goldwater and the president, and they would plan a series of TV debates just as Richard Nixon and Kennedy had debated on TV. Goldwater would end up getting no debates against Lyndon Johnson in 64. But Kennedy also had another opponent for his planned 1964 campaign poverty. He had announced a program to help Appalachia, the poorest region of the nation, but he wanted to go national. His visitors, also found their target for Kennedy's re-election win. The suburbs. At 64, voters were moving out of the city. Catholic voters who supported Kennedy were concerned now not only with city issues, but also with property taxes and storm drains. Kennedy would aim his campaign at the suburbs.
2: A future in which our country will match its military strength with our moral restraint, its wealth with our wisdom, its power with our purpose, I look forward to an America which will not be afraid of grace and beauty, which will protect the beauty of our natural environment, which will preserve the great old American houses and squares and parks of our national past, and which will build handsome and balanced cities for our future. I look forward to an America which will reward achievement in the arts as we reward achievement in business.
1: James Reston wrote about the upcoming election. Kennedy has been lucky in his competition. His record would not be an issue if he ran against Goldwater, who is too conservative. Sadly, it would be Lyndon Johnson, not Kennedy, that would run. For Abraham Lincoln, his honest thoughts were that he was in trouble when he was up for reelection. I mean, no polls were taken then. 1864 was a bitter year, country in the middle of a civil war. Good deal of concern about that war. Not everything going well. Abraham didn't offer, was a young man then, who had moved from the South to the North and rejected slavery. He wrote in his memoir in 1916 about helping out. The election of Lincoln. The renomination of Lincoln was not accomplished with ease, but if Mr. Lincoln's doubts about his renomination had been serious, his fear of defeat at the polls had developed into a veritable mental panic. Lincoln writes a note. Before the Democrats have their convention, where it's likely that they're going to nominate his former general, Lincoln has his secretary John Nickley show a note. That he's written to every cabinet member and get every cabinet member to read it and sign the back of it. And the note says This morning, as for some days, it seems improbable that the administration will be reelected. So he and the cabinet will operate with the president elect during that period to save the Union during that time, as he will have secured his election on grounds that will make it impossible afterwards. It then goes into the Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells' safe. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because he has a safe. But why write this letter? Maybe it's to bind him and his cabinet against any inclination to do something different. If there's an emotional reaction to the election, to make sure that the cabinet members are all on board and that the future policy of the administration is clear, even if there's going to be some senioritis as cabinet members know they're leaving. I could think of reasons like that. I mean, Lincoln has analyzed... He's overanalyzed. There's so many books. And yeah, it's refreshing to read something new about him. Like Dittenhofer's um, working with Lincoln. He works with him in his 30s. I read into Lincoln's modern celebrated melancholy. I also read into this a dig at his opponents. Because if you notice, he's not just saying I'm going to lose the election, though he thinks that's true. He's also saying I'm going to lose my election because this guy's going to run in a way that's just giving up to the other side that we're in war against. Now, a little bit of a dig there, too. Here's what Dittenhofer says. In the in, in the interval between the Republican convention of June and the gathering of Democrats in August, the progress of federal arms had not reached expectations. Grant had not taken Richmond. Sherman had not administered a decisive blow to General Johnson. But Dittenhoff said the Democrats also blunder, too. After Lincoln writes this letter, when they meet in Chicago, they call the war a failure and they call for an immediate cessation of hostilities. This and the party picks Congressman George Pendleton of Ohio, a noted copperhead, like a Democrat who is sympathetic at least towards the Confederate cause and wants to end the war. They pick him as his vice presidential candidate. They do nominate George McClellan. Lincoln feared that choice. He knew that McClellan would be a strong political pick. Despite everything we hear about McClellan now, you've got to remember, we're just hearing the bad things because so many books have been written about the Civil War and we celebrate Grant. But Grant is still a new figure, if a popular figure at this time. McClellan was extremely popular. He's going to be, in the future, governor of New Jersey. And his son, who's not born yet, is going to end up being mayor of New York. And a big reason for that is the McClellan name. So he's not an unpopular person. I think it's important to remember. Despite his failure as a general, he still had soldiers that respected him. And indeed, McClellan takes an interesting action that you have to look at as as probably the high point for the opposition to Lincoln in the 1864 election. He accepts the nomination, and of course, like any good 19th century candidate, you have to go overboard. This nomination comes to me unsought. I'm sure no one at all talked to him about it. (laughs) But he does insist that he's actually uh, going to bring his own position to this nomination. The union must be preserved. I could not look at my gallant soldiers and tell them That their sacrifice was in vain. I would hail peace with joy, but no peace without union. This is different from the Chicago platform. A lot of times when you see this in history, um, and I probably even said it on the podcast talking about 1864 at different times. um, You'll hear it said, McClellan repudiated the Chicago platform. But did he? That's an open question. Uh, he certainly changes the requirement for ending the war, requiring union. So he's not going to allow secession, which the Democratic platform in Chicago doesn't. And that's a pretty big step. But that's about all he does. He, he, he doesn't say, I repudiate this platform. He doesn't use that word at all. Here's what Republican-friendly newspapers say. They pour water on that concept. Um, you have a party demanding cessation of hostilities, and he's taking that nomination. It's like the bridegroom taking the property, but not the person in marriage. James Blaine, remember him? He calls McClellan the only military man to campaign on the basis of capitulation. Dieter Harf is one of these people out on the trail, and he speaks at parades. He calls McClellan the leader of Confederate forces. He says he's a delayer, not a fighting general. It's a common attack. He wasn't really leading the forces to victory. Deterhofer points to the Confederate newspapers being overjoyed when they hear of McClellan's nomination. Prices of Confederate bonds, he says, are rising on the prospect. The same is relayed by a soldier in the trenches. Sergeant Samuel Chase, a Pennsylvania soldier, who hears as the soldiers are voting out loud to the clerk and they're close in the trenches to the other side. And when someone would say McClellan, the Confederates would shout, huzzah! And that, Samuel Chase says, that's when I knew to vote for Lincoln. Colonel Charles Wainwright, who had been critical of the Lincoln administration, their conduct of the war, the proclamation, he was ready to vote against them. If the Democrats would put a strong war resolution and keep the Vallandigham sorts out, nominate good men, Vallandigham was, even more than Pendleton, a a blatant copperhead who would end up getting thrown out of the country and sent to Canada at one point. Um, First sent to the Confederate. (laughs) He's so rabid a copperhead in speaking out for... Uh, with sympathy for the Confederates and the and the cause and against the Union war effort, that Lincoln actually has him turned over to Confederate lines. Except Confederates don't really want him either, and he doesn't really want to be there. He does end up going to Richmond, but ends up in Canada and then eventually back to Ohio. But when he hears um, when this soldier Wainwright hears about the Chicago platform, he knows they haven't done that. They haven't ridden the Vallandigham sorts out of their party. I cannot chew that platform. I cannot vote for a man that says the South cannot be conquered. After enduring privation and difficulties that none but the soldier can imagine, I cannot swallow it. These are just a few examples from the story of the 1864 election, which is partially a story of civilians voting. Of course, that's the larger vote. And then a story of soldiers voting. Lincoln gets a majority, even a supermajority, of the soldier vote. At least, you know that's the way it's told. It's told sometimes eighty percent or seventy or so percent of the soldier vote he gets in his reelection, and it's true to an extent. The collected, recorded votes that we know, um, one hundred and fifty-five thousand some odd soldiers vote, and McClellan, to estimates, gets only thirty-four thousand of them. However, uh, historian Ian Toll looked into this soldier voting more and just want to look at some of his points, let's say. There's soldiers who didn't vote at all, all right? It's not all this overwhelming mandate. There's soldiers who voted for McClellan, not many as we see. There's soldiers who vote for local tickets only that don't vote for either man for president. James O'Neill of the 4th Delaware, for example, is one of these. Lincoln wanted to prolong war to abolish slavery. McClellan was totally opposed to the interest of the soldier. He votes for local tickets only. At least 20% of soldiers, Toll said, did not cast a vote for president. Also, it's not always a fair vote in the military. Uh, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton would dismiss soldiers, he heard of, who spoke out against Lincoln. Some soldiers who had stopped, um, who had supported McClellan, were court-martialed. Soldiers in West Point go to a McClellan meeting in fall 1864. When they come back, they are ordered to dig a drain for the superintendent's toilet. But Republican soldiers who are going to a Lincoln meeting are totally permitted to go to the rallies. Um, There are examples of furloughs being granted only for soldiers who would go vote for Lincoln. And that's another thing. Not all states allowed soldier voting. So you are some... Soldiers did go back to their states and vote, and it's not well recorded in these voting numbers that we hear where, oh, Lincoln won 70%. It's not clear about soldiers who went back to their states and were just in those precincts in states, you know, just in the totals with all the civilians. But soldier voting was important. Um, It sets the precedent for the black former soldiers. 200,000 black citizens fought in a war, earned their rights, and it set the precedent for procedures of all people voting and it, it sets sets the case for the 15th Amendment and sets the case for absentee voting. As true or not about the soldiers saving Lincoln were, the fact is the victory in Atlanta does. Dieterhofer is an elector in Albany and he cast an 1864 electoral vote for Lincoln. McClellan, after the union victories, would earn just 21 votes, the lowest total of any candidate, until Taft. When he first met Lincoln, Dieterhofer said, typically Western he seemed to me in his face, his figure, his dress. How would he bear himself if called upon to leave the republic, I thought? At the early time, no suspicion of greatness came to my mind. Those thoughts were wrong. As a statesman and a reformer, he belongs not to America, but to the world. That was a man seventy years later thinking about Lincoln in the election of 1864. No one can discount the double accomplishment of 1864. I mean, the US had an election during a war, so this could not be questioned anymore. And they chose, I think, at least right, the right person. Um, most observers do. It's possible McClellan, you know, could be this story. Like you have the story of Chester Arthur right against civil service reform, and then for it when he gets into the presidency, maybe McClellan gets into the presidency, and as he sort of hints he might do with his acceptance, does something different, prosecutes the war, it's going to be tough because the first story of an administration, hypothetically like that, is going to be a story of him fighting with his own party at every step. In the end, though, it's right to say that Lincoln was right. If the election had been canceled, it would have ruined us. In terms of soldier voting, states paved the way. Ohio in 1864 allowed Ohioans in faraway Atlanta to vote in their camps there, dropping ballots into boxes and having the vote go to proxy votes that could be mailed to the state. Pennsylvania sent state officials to the front to oversee this process. A couple other states do too. 12% of Ohioans were soldiers. 12% of, of Ohioan voters were soldiers. The majority were for Lincoln. Pennsylvania, too, has precedent. It had passed a Military Absentee Act in 1813 to allow for War of 1812 militia to vote if a soldier was more than two miles away from a polling place. But to prevent fraud, Pennsylvania's Constitution amended later to forbid anyone voting anywhere but the election district that they reside in. The legislature adjusted the Military Epson Act to allow for soldiers, but that's a law, and and the restriction was constitutional. So this issue comes to play in 1861 as Pennsylvania Supreme Court actually rules soldier voting unconstitutional. Pennsylvania before the 1864 election, has to amend its constitution, but it does so to override that court decision and allow soldiers to vote so that they can in the 1864 election. Connecticut, seeing what happened in Pennsylvania, sends its absentee ballots bill to the Supreme Court of Connecticut, asks them to find it either constitutional or unconstitutional before they enact this bill and have to wait for a case. The Supreme Court does review it and says it's unconstitutional. And then Connecticut amends its constitution. So does Kansas, so does Maine, so does New York, so does Rhode Island. In Indiana and Massachusetts, they try to amend the constitution, but the amendment fails. So soldiers had to get furloughed or come home or not vote. Oliver Morton, Republican governor of Indiana, one of these states that, you know, didn't always see a lot of soldier voting because the Indianans in the service were away. He always felt that with Republican soldiers away, he ended up with a Democratic legislature opposed to war measures. New Jersey also failed to amend its constitution to allow absentee voting, though it did after the war. One noticeable effect of soldier voting was in Maryland, an amendment to ban slavery in the state passed by 475 votes. That means it is indeed the result of soldier votes. Without being counted, they would not have been to devo- vote decisive. Uh, As for civilian absentee laws, these are, it starts in the 19th century with soldier voting, the idea of any kind of voting out of your, when you're not physically in your election district. Civilian absentee laws are rooted in these military laws. You see it in the nineteen teens. Vermont and Kansas have very limited laws. A voter can vote somewhere else, but it has to be Vermont, or Kansas in a polling place, and they have to fill out a form. It could be challenged. If it's like one vote between the election and it's yours, that might be challenged. Missouri and North Dakota enact civilian absentee laws. During World War I, you see some states updating and using their soldier vote laws to apply them to supportive industries, people in railroad jobs or university students. World War I leads to an increase in absentee legislation. Only three states don't have it by the time you get to 1924. But it's rooted in the disruption of war. In World War II, there is an official federal war ballot, a bright red envelope, mailed to the Secretary of State by the soldier serving anywhere. But it's only enacted before the 1944 presidential election, after there were problems with the fir- in the first year's you know, 1942, 1943, and soldiers are writing letters telling them they were tired of Congress stalling legislation and their states stalling legislation for soldier voting. It had no names on it. The soldier had to write in votes for president, U.S. senator, and Congress. It was only for U.S. elections, not for state elections. California, Florida, Georgia, Maine, and 22 other states allowed the use of these ballots. 11 million individuals serving around the globe could potentially benefit from this program. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if... Instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvelukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Mook on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country it's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Without polling and with very biased media in those times, newspapers were either calling Lincoln a black Republican or a saint. You couldn't quite tell what was going on, where the races were turning. And 128 years later, Candidate would find himself the netherworld of an attack caused by his opponents, and the attack was, he was crazy. Maybe he made a visit to a psychiatrist, a neighbor of his wife's sister. The candidate is Michael Dukakis, his wife, Kitty Dukakis, had that psychiatrist friend. The Boston Globe reported that Dukakis didn't release his medical records. And then Dukakis refuses to when asked. The campaign in 1988 just releases like a quick letter about Dukakis's health. No major problems. Here's how the Washington Post describes what happens next with this little bit of fact stretched out. What happened next was a phenomenon peculiar to the insider's political community. Obsession with a question that's unknown to the rest of America. And there's this talk among the campaigns. And among the reporters that follow the campaigns, the gaggle, that the Detroit News is about to release a Dukakis story. It's going to release it. And of course, the person behind that is Lee Atwater. He even says within the Bush campaign and to some reporters, he's about 20% sure this Detroit News story is going to be true. And it's enough to kind of get the whispering going. And it's this weird mixture of if you try to challenge Lee Atwater on it. Well, he didn't really say it publicly. He just kind of whispered it. He also said it's probably not true. And also, he's citing the Detroit News as the source. So giving it this little like air of credibility when really it's just coming from him. Then you get to the White House press conference. And no one's quite sure what happened here with this one. But... A reporter asks Reagan, and maybe Reagan was viewing the newspapers or maybe Reagan had heard some of this talk in the White House. You know, he's not. Reagan is involved with the 1988 campaign, but Bush does have a separate operation for his campaign. President Reagan, asked by a reporter, probably upset that Mike Dukakis had attacked him and his administration, says that, well, Dukakis is an invalid. The reporters are shocked. I mean, there's no basis for this whatsoever. Um, he ends up, Reagan, having to sort of apologize. He doesn't really apologize. He says it was a joke. Dukakis running a kind of calm, take it easy campaign. We talked um, about this in the episode about Kennedy and debates we had earlier on in the in the fall. And, uh, you know, the last thing in opposition party who's running against an opponent who's not the incumbent president, but there's an incumbent president in office who's popular. You don't want to wake the dragon, so to speak. So I think they didn't want do Dukakis versus Reagan. They wanted to keep it versus Bush. So Dukakis turns it down. He basically says, we all make mistakes. Maybe he's going to give himself a freebie if Dukakis makes a mistake down the line. The president doesn't need to apologize. So no apology was given and none was accepted, but none was also needed is how this story goes. So the president has just called the opposition party candidate crazy. It does force Dukakis to go ahead and release a lengthier report from his doctor, which says, of course, he's not crazy. He doesn't have any major health problems. And eventually that Detroit news story does come out. And there's nothing about him at all, except just repeating that he hadn't released the uh, medical records when asked. This non-story becomes a real event. In fact, Dukakis thinks that it was responsible for at least eight an eight-point drop in polls. You don't lose eight points in a week for nothing, he would say later about this. And it leads to an Evans and Novak, which is kind of like the second-day story of... All the Democrats are saying he's not handling this well. you know this shouldn't have uh, gotten as far as it did. The Orlando Centennial joked about the phantom physici- the phantom psychiatrist trailing as badly as they are. and at this time the Bush campaign was trailing. All they have are negatives. Atwater had done this in the past to a political opponent. So the Centennial pointed that out. Tom Turnipseed in South Carolina created just this unfounded shock therapy story that had no basis in anything other than maybe somebody was remembering about the Eagleton crisis in 1972 with McGovern's running mate. And so, out of thin air, this stuff comes in. Medical records would be an issue, surprisingly, for Bill Clinton as president running for his reelection in 1996. He's running against a 73 year old opponent. Bob Dole, and he's 50. I mean, you would think that uh, Dole would be the one with a medical issue in the campaign. But Dole, because of his age, did release his records and a report. He saw that coming. And then he said, well, now it's Clinton's turn. Dole's campaign asks, why won't the president of the United States provide a full accounting of his medical history and records? The Dole campaign says, partial disclosure is no disclosure, as the Clinton's White House has proven time and again. And Dole goes on 60 Minutes and asks for it after Clinton won't release more. I've released mine. Why hasn't he released his? They weren't worried about Clinton's physical strength, of course. What they were hoping is to get the topic on is Clinton using drugs. Clinton stuck to the White House physician letter that had already been released, and it didn't become a huge issue. He won the race. These unsettling rumors that end Up in campaigns, though obviously promoted by one side, do have a long history. I mean, perhaps it's because Americans are skeptical of politicians anyway. Or perhaps it's because the press wants to scoop or wants to make the campaign more exciting for readers. I could see newspaper reporters saying, I have no idea if Dukakis is crazy, but what if he is? And what if the New York Times confirms it before me? No more than speculation. But it does. But there is the possibility that maybe Atwater sent it out into the rumorverse in the hope that reporters might land not on Mike Dukakis, but on Kitty Dukakis and her well-known alcohol problems, which she disclosed during the campaign, but actually continued long after the election of 88. It's not known. Susan Estrich, Dukakis' campaign manager, wrote in 2004 that when she saw some of the John Kerry Swift boat attacks coming, people who had said they served with John Kerry but weren't actually serving with John Kerry, she said, I've seen this movie before. Allegations come out, you don't respond, and we see how it goes. Of course, there's some of that that went Bush's way. The very common assertions of cocaine use um, about George W. Bush made all the time, various websites. The Larry Flint talk of an abortion Bush had for a girlfriend in the early 1970s that and saying constantly that he knew the girl could prove it. He managed to get on a few seconds on the end of Crossfire, CNN, about it, unchallenged. I knew the girl. I can prove it, but doesn't. These didn't stick as well as Swift Boat. Now, Dan Rather's presentation of the Killian documents is another example where documents were allegedly made from Bush's commander in the Texas Air National Guard. The documents' authenticity were in question. It turns out some of the uh, CBS's own sources were not really as ironclad in approving those documents. And Some of them say that doesn't really look like these kind of zeitgeist rumors aren't new at all just confirming things that you already know or pretending to have confirmation of what you already know. When Andrew Jackson, now president in 1832, is getting into his reelection. at the same time, he's operated on to finally have a bullet removed from his shoulder, one that he received from Senator Thomas Hart Benton in a duel. It was a field day for his opponents. The duel was in 1813. This is 1832. Yet, for the Whig press, this was an indication. And, and, you know, as they're running Henry Clay against him, it was just an indication of how disgusting this man was. He was a brawler. And now the president is in a sling. And again, it's like the sling is a fact. He's walking around with a sling. Anyone in Washington City is going to see that. And that he was a dueler is also a fact, but combining those two things to take an 1813 duel and turn it into an 1832 president, um, still a very uh, brawling man, is, is, is the magic of the opposition press. A Jackson supporter did the natural thing, oppo research, and found a story about his opponent, Henry Clay, who also got into duels. And at one time, He was hurt so badly in a duel that he had to be taken to a friend's house. The Jackson supporter wrote, He was treated with tenderness and courtesy by his friend and his friend's wife and family. But what did Henry Clay do while recuperating? He plays cards, and he ends up winning a large sum of money from his kind host. Maybe Jackson is a brawler, but Clay is a gambler an ingrate, and still a brawler. Calvin Coolidge dealt with a political opponent, probably his toughest during his time as president, but it wasn't John Davis or Robert LaFollette who were on the ballot as his opponents in 1924 when he ran for re-election. It was Gifford Pinchot, the governor of Pennsylvania, a uh, friend of, at this time, deceased Theodore Roosevelt, And former head of the National Forest Service, a conservationist that was featured in Ken Burns' uh, National Parks documentary, if you've watched that. But now in the 1920s, Pinchot had another cause, prohibition. He won his governorship of Pennsylvania in a three-way race with the dries solidly behind him. He balanced the budget. He got the admiration of progressives. Coolidge was president and would be up in 1924, but Coolidge got the presidency because he was Harding's vice president. And more than that, he wasn't well-respected in Washington. Senators hadn't really known him as vice president. In fact, in the uh, convention, which we should talk about later, um, the reason Coolidge is chosen is kind of like a popular surge during the convention and not the powers that be picking him. So he's not really in with the Republican establishment. It's wide open for a primary challenge. And uh, Pinchot wants a piece of it. There's a coal strike in Pennsylvania. Calvin Coolidge won't get seriously involved in it. Now, you have to understand um, coal is the energy source then. It's going to show up in the heating costs for the populated northeastern part of the country. So coal strike politics is actually figuring into many White Houses at this time. Theodore Roosevelt's going to get involved in resolving a coal strike, and he's going to be the first to put together a meeting of um, strikers and employers in his first term. McKinley also got involved in these. So this goes back. Coolidge passes, even though GOP congressmen in the Northeast urged the president to get involved. Pinchot urges him to get involved. National problem or not, Pennsylvania mined most of the nation's coal. Plus, it uses a lot of coal, too. So Pinchot, as governor, has to get involved now. He's not seeing enough White House action. He waits a little bit, and then he meets with operators and with the United Mine Workers. He began daily meetings between the two sides, but made it clear there can be no strike, and there has to be recognition of the union by the operators. Those were... Positions that could not be debated that the governor insisted on. Pinchot's a progressive, and he's going to get a lot of progressive support. Support from the types of people that would end up supporting La Follette in the twenty-four election, that would end up that, that did support Theodore Roosevelt in nineteen twelve. He makes suggestions too. Even though there was a strike in September nineteen twenty-three, Pinchot made it only a seven day strike. And a settlement is reached. Pinchot's name is all over the newspapers at this point, And the New York Times makes it clear. Coolidge, politically, had erred by not intervening. It was a tactical political error. Pinchot is now talked about for the 1924 nomination. It was a decisive action that showed that he could be the chief executive. Now, Coolidge does something smart here, though. Something that a president can do. Kill him with praise and take credit. Coolidge says, congratulations to solving this very difficult situation in which I invited your cooperation. Some of the press gets word that this telegram is sent, but Pinchot doesn't release the telegraph to the press, nor does Coolidge. In this case, Coolidge's propensity to be silent hurts him on this political issue because since Pinchot doesn't release actually what Coolidge says... Coolidge, usually silent, isn't going to be loud here and doesn't release it either. So it's not seen and confirmed by most. Otherwise, it would have been a devastating way for Coolidge to take credit. Progressives are excited. Albert Beveridge, who's Theodore Roosevelt's friend in Congress in the past, uh, telegraphs congratulations. Progressives are thrilled, are not thrilled with Harding. They're less thrilled with Coolidge, just, who just seemed to be continuing Harding's administration. Pinchot has another issue to run on. Here's what uh, Time Magazine says at the time. Mr. Pinchot, whose, whose head hives a very busy presidential bee, knows prohibition is an issue with a silver lining. Mr. Coolidge is undoubtedly dry. Mr. Pinchot is therefore more dry, and he hoped to follow the church people to the nomination. He had to be careful, though, attacking a Republican president. So he goes to the Citizenship Council of Churches and says, well, the president needs to take personal enforcement of prohibition. In other words, it's not criticizing Coolidge directly. It's almost saying, you're so good at this job, you need to attend to this matter. But at the same time, it is a criticism. If the president was involved, there wouldn't be so much flouting of the law, Pinchot says. To this group, on this issue, it's as bad as a television negative attack ad is now. At a governor's association meeting, too, he gets his fellow governors to ask the federal government to exercise its full power-enforcing prohibition. The states, they say, are powerless. When Coolidge speaks to governors, Pinchot is listening, but then tells the press after the speech that he wasn't specific enough on what he'd do on enforcement. Coolidge needed to take specific steps with manufacturers and with law enforcement that he wasn't naming. Coolidge never takes Pinchot's bait, though. He stays silent, Cal. He's for limited government, and that means let states enforce, with help from us, but not a top-down federal effort. He does increase Coast Guard funding to fight rum running. This is where Pinchot is riding on some never-stated rumors that Coolidge is a secret wet a supporter of free sale of alcohol. See, Coolidge did have breweries in his old state senate district, and those breweries supported his initial campaigns. Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon, as well, was known to hate prohibition. And he's Treasury Secretary. It's his department, partially, that's enforcing this. He did the minimum. Coolidge really kept discussion of all issues to a minimum, but... On Prohibition, basically what he would say is, Congress passed Volstead. I support it. Referring to the act that enabled uh, Prohibition by Congress. But he also was on record saying, any law that inspired lawlessness is bad law. So if, if you're reading the press, winter 23, winter 24, there's a real possibility that Coolidge has a serious primary opponent. But in the end, Pinchot was trapped up in the end, Pinchot gets tripped up, not on the prohibition issue, which is working for him, but on the coal strike. He had resolved that cold strike and got the initial praise, and then prices go up because employers decide, yes, we'll raise, we'll raise union wages slightly, but we're passing it on to consumers. So prices go up, and consumers start feeling it. And Pichot is widely blamed. Now he turns to what else? to try to get Coolidge to help intervene with the miners to not keep, you know, to keep those prices down. Coolidge will not. As the nation observed, Pinchot received credit for breaking the strike, but Coolidge got the benefit of the tranquility that resulted from it, and Pinchot's presidential prospects quickly faded. There is a prohibitionist party that runs against Coolidge even, even if the country is under prohibition, there's a desire for more enforcement by these people. Gets 55,000 votes, but Coolidge gets 15 million and wins the election. It's worth noting about that Prohibition Party because it's it's something we don't think about much, but it was a uh, third or fourth or fifth party for many elections and had some effects. Uh, prohibition's parties, The Prohibition Party starts in 1869 and does have a long history of being a bit, of a drag on Republicans in the 19th century. Probably the most effective year for them was 1884, when they run John St. John, the former governor of Kansas. His state had Prohibition and would until 1948. He does two things in his campaign. One is he travels all across the nation on behalf of the Prohibition Party. His father had been an alcoholic. His mother suffered greatly. He raised himself essentially fought in the Civil War. He was an abolitionist and a supporter of bringing free blacks from, bringing bringing freed African Americans from the southern states to Kansas to welcome migrants, as he did as governor of Kansas, to anyone who would flee Jim Crow. But he was most known for his position on alcohol, which he saw as an evil But it's 1884. Republicans don't want to lose votes. They decline to add temperance to their platform. And John St. John bolts from the party. Some say our party doesn't have money or uniforms or 80,000 torchbearers. That's very true. But we are lighting a torch that will burn forever. We have no influence, they say. Very true. We have no relationship with the railroads. Good. It would be unbecoming for us to ride in a palace car when laborers are working under the ground with barely enough to live on. Yes, John St. John, in addition to being a prohibitionist, was a working man's advocate. He linked the two issues. Liquor was a big business. It made money for the rich, but it kept workers down. And he made a point of saying at all the rallies, because it was true that presidential candidates often got transported by railroads. We pay our own fare. James Blaine and the Republicans in 1884 running against Grover Cleveland, a very tight race. They see him as a potential target. Republicans hate John St. John. Blaine is always talking about him. They have to attack him. And they point out that a vote for St. John is a vote for Democrats. In some places, St. John is burned in effigy. They call the prohibitionists cranks. But St. John is successful, probably the most successful Prohibitionist candidate. He increases his party's vote total by 14 times what it had received in the 1880 election. And much to James Blaine's dismay, he gets 25,000 votes in New York, a total swing state in this election. Generally, Democrats do not vote for the Temperance Party, so votes that go To St. John are all stolen Blaine votes. Blaine loses to Cleveland in the 1884 election by 1,200 votes in New York, a win that will put Grover Cleveland in the White House. Now, it's important to say because you have that story, rum, Romanism, and rebellion. I'm trying to focus on more obscure stories here so I don't have to get into it too much, but you know it's a comment made by a Blaine supporter that may turn the election because it angers Democrats in New York, to really go out and vote. And, um, but Blaine doesn't see that comment. You know, Blaine claims he never heard the comment. That's why he never, he never disavowed it. Blaine doesn't think that's what turned the election. He, Blaine's story for years afterward is that it's St. John that took those 25,000 votes and turned the election. It's exactly the equivalent of the Ralph Nader situation, the 2000 election for Democrats. In four years, in 1888, when Republicans do win the election, the Prohibitionist Party would get even more votes, 250,000 nationally, which suggests that either the situation's politically different in 1884, or maybe Blaine was wrong, and at least if you have a better Republican campaign, also a worse Democratic candidate at that point, a less popular Democratic candidate. You know, you can win despite the Prohibitionists running. The next time... There is any Prohibitionist candidate that considered to be impactful is the 1916 contest between Woodrow Wilson and Charles Hughes. In California, the margin is 3,700 votes. The Prohibition party gets 25,000. In New Hampshire, Wilson wins by 56 votes, and Prohibition gets 303. Those 17 electoral votes added to Hughes instead of Wilson would have made 1916, Instead of 277 Wilson, it would be 260 Wilson and 271 Hughes, puts Hughes in the White House. It's hard to blame the prohibitionists, really, and that's not the major reason for 1916. You, you have many forces operating there because prohibitionists throughout the turn of the century are going to get you know about 200,000 or so votes in each of these elections, building off St. John's 1884 result. Even in 1920, after the Prohibition Amendment is ratified, they get 185,000 votes. But passing Prohibition does help. The Prohibition Party will go down to 20,000 in 1928. The party still exists, by the way, in various forms. In 2016, the Party under um, Prohibition Party ran only in Arkansas, Colorado, and Mississippi. And it got... 5,514 votes. That is completely meaningless to the national vote between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. But it is interesting to note that for the Prohibition Party of modern times, that's a good result. It's about, you know, in some recent years, their vote has been less than 1,000. In 2012, for instance, they had their convention in a Holiday Inn Express in Cullman, Alabama, got just 538 votes nationally. So it goes to show you about 2016, people were writing in, looking for a lot of other places to vote. From a candidate who didn't know he was running, and a president with almost no one to run against, to a candidate that decided not to run, but maybe or maybe not, he could have been president. He doesn't look like he'll be president now. Who am I talking about? I'm a kid from New Jersey, and I'm being asked if I should run for president. I'm thrilled by this. So told Chris Christie, Republican governor of New Jersey, to reporters who asked. This is when Christie was in office a little over a year. A U.S. prosecutor before that. He's getting asked questions, first by other candidates. Mitt Romney. Tim Pawenti, Minnesota. But soon, big journals are interested in him. He's the GOP leader of a blue state in 2012. Yeah, he had just been elected governor in 2010, but the talk got serious. More serious than I think most know. Most people just think, you know, it's pretty much Mitt Romney's nomination to have. Christie freezes New Jersey. This means that he, as a governor, tells New Jersey-based GOP donors not to donate to other people yet. Um. This is just kind of one of those insider things, and I don't believe it's perfect and works in every case, but you have to remember the big donors, what are they donating for, right? You want to be influential with politicians, at least have their ear, um, or at least just be seen as a big supporter of the party. So the governor's telling you, if a state is telling you to do something, you're going to tend to listen at least for a time. A group of Iowans come to Trenton to visit. Christy. You know, please, we don't have anyone that can beat Obama. He listens. He thanks them. He doesn't say anything. Christy tells reporters, I'm not interested. That's a no, but it's not. Not interested is not a true no. And he keeps doing things like this. He keeps saying that he's Trapped up in a semantic game with the reporters, like, what do I have to do? Commit suicide, he says at one point, to tell you I'm not interested. But he, he never, he, he there's certain words that he doesn't use. And one of them's like, I am not running for president, like, no matter what, and all of that. He never says that. He was fighting with the state legislature. It's controlled by Democrats over the budget. But according to the book, Double Down, and these are the same guys that wrote um, Game Change in 2008, Good insider books, interviewing a lot of staffers. Um, it says it goes a lot farther than that. I think it goes a lot farther than the 2012 Christie flirtation goes a lot farther. Kenneth Langor, billionaire behind the Home Depot, and his friends, other billionaires that listen to him, expressly want Christie to make a run. They'll do everything. He's not going to have to worry about money. Christie's wife, Mary Pat, is against. Him running for president, but when that fundraising obstacle is removed, she's much more supportive of uh, Fox News. Roger Ailes, Rupert Murdoch make a point of airing a speech. Intermediaries are saying you're going to get Greek coverage on Fox News, which for Republicans is gold. September 4th, Christie makes a speech from the Reagan Library, and it's carried on Fox News to much acclaim. Um, Big names, including Henry Kissinger, say, you know, he'd make a great president. Barbara Bush calls Mary Pat Christie and says, don't worry, the White House is a great place for families. You needn't worry. In fact, it's pretty clear where the Bush family's going, you know, now out of office, where they're going in 2012. Karl Rove calls. Counters every argument that Chris Christie has. Worried about your state? Worried about leaving and campaigning for president? Clinton did it in 92. George W. Bush did it in 2000. Perry, governor of Texas, is doing it right now in 2012. Christie wasn't sure he could be president, wasn't sure he was ready. Rove answers The guy that we have now isn't ready. Finally, he gets the call from W. And Christy and W talk for 45 minutes, about which we don't have that. So what happened? Um, To hear Double Down tell it and everything that Christy said about 2012 is that it was a personal decision, gut decision. Maybe he's driving in a car (laughs) and just says no. So when Mitt Romney goes to see Christy and thinks it's going to be another like What's your timetable type discussion? He's shocked when Christie says, Mitt, I'm backing you, and I'm releasing my donors and endorsing you tomorrow. Why'd he do it? Double Down Book suggests that he just wasn't ready. He felt like there was more of New Jersey to run. This was, he'd only done two years as governor. Um, but I don't know. And we know more now than they even knew when they're writing the Double Down Book. Um... One thing we know is that Christie would run in 2016. So I suspect politics is at play. People very often prepare, prefer to run for open seats. You see this, like, Mario Cuomo, 92, doesn't want to run against Bush. Hillary Clinton doesn't want to run against Bush. I think Christie's the same way. He's like, this is, I'm running up against uh, incumbent president. You know, of course, he doesn't see what's coming his way, which is the New Jersey Bridgegate scandal. It's going to really destroy his chances and make his 2016 run like ridiculous. Uh, by the way, maybe Bridgegate paved the way for Trump. It's, it's amazing how things work. The point of all of this is seize the day in politics. That was always the Kennedy way. Um, obviously, Obama followed that. In the, 22, in the 2012 election, it would turn out that Mitt Romney would be the candidate, pretty easily winning the nomination. Obama... And Christie have a moment when they tour New Jersey after Hurricane Sandy. It may have boosted the presidential campaign of Obama in that year, you know, or maybe it really didn't, because a lot of the predictors were wrong about how easy that election would be for President Obama. Most said it would be difficult, and it was a pretty quick election night. Um, but Christie, goes out to walk the beach with Obama to see Hurricane Sandy damage. Christie insists that he did the right thing. I'm the governor of the state. And what did you want me to do? Something clever like wearing a Romney t-shirt? I wasn't going to do that. He's the president. You know, it might have helped him a bit, but that's the fault of the hurricane, not the governor. For his part, Mitt Romney has always said the same thing, and Mitt Romney says the same to Christie. You did the right thing. You're the governor. You have to be the governor. Didn't hurt me. Many felt it did. And then there's even one of these little mumbling rumors that appear over the, even an event that's on TV. So we think these things are only part of like 19th century, um, you know, pulp press, right? Little invented rumors. But even an event that's televised that you can verify, a rumor develops that gets into the 2016 cycle that Christie hugged Obama during this meeting. And actually, it was a handshake. Greta Van Sustern, then with Fox News, has to confirm this with reviewing the videotape. <laughs> it becomes a story. Christie said, I hug everybody. And in fact, I probably upset Obama because I didn't hug him. You know, I'll make a rare political observation here. Um, Christie and I don't see to eye, eye to eye on politics. I wouldn't be, you know, for him as issues and some political theater that he engaged in, you know, yelling at teachers and principals and, and things like that, especially early on in his governorship. I, I didn't like it. I do think that he had the, he had the um, maybe not the presidential gravitas, but he had the kind of a, a working mold where if it was cultivated and better disciplined, um, some elements were there. You know, like, for instance, like right now in the 2020 atmosphere of politics, I think absolutely a governor who's a Republican would not invite um, Ob- an Obama Democrat to their state or wouldn't walk with them. You know, I think he had a a better sense of what correct calls to make. Was it presidential? Mm, maybe the embryonic form of it. But his furtive 2012 campaign will just be one of those what ifs. About helping rivals, in 1884, they asked Roscoe Conkling, former senator senator and Republican boss from New York, who hated James G. Blaine more than he hated anyone, but Blaine was now the Republican nominee. Then they asked Conkling, now that Blaine's received the nomination of your party, will you work for him? Gentlemen, he told the reporters, you are misinformed. I stopped practicing criminal law years ago. I want to thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed these. If you stayed with me, well, I thank you a lot. You are a superior listener to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Think about we have the Patreon site, so the Patreon is simply the letters of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. It's patreon.com slash mhcbuyp. Check it out. And uh, if you can support the program, great. If not, you know, tell someone about the program, give us a review, uh, tweet at me at, uh, at my hist, at M-Y-H-I-S-T. We have the Facebook group, Fans of My History compete Up Your Politics. If you've listened to this whole thing and you're not a fan yet, you know, I don't know. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, thanks for listening.